As the functional approach to medicine continues to evolve, we are now witnessing the emergence of a powerful systems-orientated model capable of addressing the healthcare needs of the 21st century. In April 2016, Bioceuticals will be holding the fourth Bioceuticals Research Symposium to provide healthcare professionals with leading, cutting-edge research, highlighting the future of integrative and functional medicine. We've chosen the world's leading functional medicine experts to show you how they integrate the explosion of research with the latest in genetic science, nutrition and metabolic medicine. For more information, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And today on the line, all the way from Seattle, rainy Seattle in the US, we have Dr. Deanna Minnick, an internationally recognized health expert with more than 20 years of experience in nutrition, mind, body health, and functional medicine. Dr. Minnick holds a master's and doctorate degrees in nutrition and has lectured extensively throughout the world on health topics, teaching patients and health professionals about nutrition. She's a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, a certified nutrition specialist and a certified functional medicine practitioner. Currently, Dr. Minnick teaches for the Institute of Functional Medicine, and the, that's the IFM, and for the graduate program in functional medicine at the University of Western States. Her passion is bringing forth a whole self approach to nourishment and bridging the gaps between science, soul and art in medicine. Welcome, Dr. Deanna Minnick. Oh, thank you so much for that warm introduction, and it's lovely to be here. I can't wait to meet you, because you'll be speaking at the 2016 Bioceutical Symposium. I've heard so much about you, you don't know me from a bar of soap. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I, I know you from my meetings with Jeff Bland over the years at IFM. Oh, yeah, okay, of course. Well, you know, I, I've been to Australia a couple of times. I'm really looking forward to the experience in April. So I'm I'm working on it. I'm planning on it. And, you know, the, the Australians are, are so advanced in many ways in terms of their health knowledge. So it'll be great to be in the company of all of the... Uh, the, the seasoned practitioners who are doing their, their work and, and ready to learn some new things. Oh, we can't wait to, to meet you as well, I tell you. Now, Deanna, tell me first about your history because you've worked closely with mm. Jeff Bland at the Institute for Functional Medicine, that's the IFM. But tell me about yeah. your pri history prior to that. What led you to become a dietitian? What was your interest? And how did your work with yeah. Jeff evolve? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm not a dietitian. <laughs> so I, my path is much more research oriented. So I was never trained as a dietitian. So um, I think from my perspective, that is, is a good thing because it left me fairly open in terms of my, my topics and, and where I was going. I was much more oriented in the science direction more yep. than the clinical direction. Yep. And then later I had more of a clinical direction. So how did I start out? You know, I would say it goes all the way back to my childhood. My mother, when I was nine years old, she really got into this personal catharsis and transformation mm. where everything became around her food and her faith. 
So as I was growing up at the ripe old age of nine, I remember coming home to these brown bread, peanut butter and banana sandwiches when all the other kids, at least in the States, I know that this is crazy, but you know, Wonder Bread, White Bread with peanut butter and jelly. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of this outcast from a very young age because of how we ate in our family. My mom being so health conscious, we didn't have a microwave. She made everything from scratch. She got us into exercise. I mean, now I look back like, wow, my mom was really cutting edge. Absolutely. (laughs) But at the time, I didn't like it. You know, it wasn't very comfortable to be in that space. So how did that, how did you handle that as, you know, a a young lady and and going into a teenager with all the peer pressure? How did you handle that? I cried. Yeah. I cried. (laughs) And I, I felt like it was torture, quite honestly. And so what ended up happening is I really got into these eating disorders of various sorts. Yeah. Um, I couldn't have sugar. I couldn't have any kind of sweets. I had to bring my own food to uh, to gatherings at school. So I'm making it sound probably worse than it was, but it was really um, a great lesson for me. I'm actually glad that it happened this way because I went through this trajectory of emotional eating, overeating, binge eating, really getting to know myself through food, right? I mean, we've got to all eat. Mm -hmm. So how we eat is going to say something about who we are. So what I would say is um, I was really polarized against doing anything with nutrition. In fact, I was pre-med. I was all destined to go to medical school. And then when push came to shove, uh, it just didn't feel right. I started working for doctors during the summers when I was off from school and something just felt off. And so finally, and, and I must also mention that I had a, a lot of different health issues myself. I had endometriosis. I had anxiety. I had IBS. You know, as a teen, I started developing a lot of these things. So I became a searcher. I was searching for things to help me. And of course, I did not want to look at nutrition, but I ended up circling back to nutrition. And then I went to graduate school I got my master's in nutritional biochemistry, and then, (laughs) lo and behold, I went on for my PhD in nutrition. I never would have thought at the age of nine, if you were to ask me what I want to be when I grow up, (laughs) that I would have said a nutritional biochemist. You would have gone polar. (laughs) But that's actually, yeah, so here I am talking to you. So, you know, from that point on, uh, professionally, gosh, I didn't finish school until I was 29. You know, I was doing lots of research, lots of clinical projects. Um, started even working with patients at that time. And then after that, I went to work for a food industry, a large food industry. Uh, And I'm really glad I did that too, because it gave me the opportunity to see on the inside of how food products are made and what all goes into that. Mm -hmm. Um, From there, I, I transitioned to working for a dietary supplement company, which is where I met Jeffrey Blands, and uh, Jeff and I traveled the world giving talks. Um, gosh, I was with with that company for 10 years. Um, I did a lot of speaking and teaching, and I worked at the clinic, and that clinic was called the Functional Medicine Research Center. So we did a lot of functional medicine work, obviously, a lot of product formulation, development, teaching. Um, it was great. You know, I couldn't believe that I was actually getting paid to do those things that I love so much. Yeah, it's good. So that's that's really, and and I've continued to do teaching. I'm a professor now. Um, I also run a number of clinical programs. I've just written a book called Hold Detox, 
Um, that's my fifth book. So everything that I do is kind of this weaving together of creative expression and nutrition education. I really like to bring a different twist into it for patients, and I like to teach practitioners in kind of artistic ways, I guess, is is how I would say it. That's an amazing change around from food being, you know, a personal emotional burden to you to now being your forte and how, you know, what you love to to help (laughs) other people with. It's quite amazing. So, Deanna, everybody's got the diet, um, but medicine still Uh clings hopelessly to this high carb, low fat diet, even though it's been, it's been just dissed now. You know, the Sydney Heart Study just debunked the high um, linoleic acid uh, theory of of health, mm-hmm. if you like. Tell me what's happening with medicine and with diet and also put in what you do because you have, a, as you said previously, a little bit of a different twist on how you like to approach things mm-hmm. for patients. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to let everybody know that I don't subscribe to a certain way of eating other than being gluten-free and dairy-free, so and also sugar-free to the extent that I can. Mm. So what I would say is that I'm not coming from a place of preaching a certain diet as we enter into this discussion. So I'm, I'm fairly, I'm like Switzerland when it comes to diets. <laughs> I am very neutral. Yeah. I like to just be objective and Really and truly what's happening in the 21st century, and Jeff Bland would tell you this as well, is that nutrition is really taking a turn Mm. into becoming much more personalized. And thank goodness, uh, because of the Human Genome Project, which was unveiled in 2003, that now, 12 or 13 years later, we're starting to see some ripple-through effect into nutrition. So we now see the emergence of things like nutrigenomics, nutrigenetics, We see the application of SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, as they relate to certain processes in the body and how to get things out in metabolism. So what I would say is I I feel like all this mumbo-jumbo around high-fat, low-fat, high-carb, low-carb, all the different permutations of just the runaround of macronutrients is really trite, banal, and passe. Mm. I think we need to go further into the complexity of nutrition You know, nutrition is like a pendulum, right? What we've seen and what I've seen over the course of my last 20 years being in the field is that if I want to justify to you eating a high-carb, just as you suggested, a high-carb, low-fat diet, I can go right into the studies and I can pull articles for you. I can turn it. I can twist it exactly how I want it to be. And on the other side of the fence, I can pull equally as many articles to support eating high-fat and low-carb. So, you know, it it just, I I think that nutrition as a field is difficult because there's so much out there. We're not taking into account lifestyle and and other variables Uh, in the populations that are being studied. And we're surely not taking into account uh, nutrigenomics and looking more at the epigenetic effects of food and, you know, kind of looking at this one size fits all. So even that Sydney trial that, that you mentioned, you know, we're just looking at one simple thing. Well, sure, we're increasing PUFAs, linoleic acid, but how are we shifting the rest of the diet? What is the form that that is coming in? Is it just butter and oils? How are we changing and substituting the other contents of the meal? Because anytime you change one thing, you're going to ripple through and change many others. That's exactly So nutrition, what frustrates me being a PhD nutritionist and seeing all the research is that 
we are studying nutrition like it's an isolation from everything else, and it's just not true. It's mm-hmm. very difficult to make these kinds of studies um, accurate. I wholeheartedly support you there. In fact, it's one of my um, little ponderances is, um, you know, we talk about um, the Mediterranean diet, for instance, has got probably the biggest support. And it is a very healthy diet. There's no question of that. But then you've got something like a a very interesting study of the Pima Indians, where they were basically, you know, segmented by a border. The United, half of them were in the United States in in SoCal, Southern California. And the other half were in northern Mexico. And the only real okay. difference was the, the access to technology and um, sedention, a sedentary lifestyle in the SoCal area. Whereas in um, the northern Mexico, they were extremely poor but had a very high carb, high fiber diet mm. um, with mm-hmm. lots of beans and things like that. And the big thing was that they were poor and so therefore they had little mechanization. They had to do manual right. labor. So th- as you say, you know, we tend to isolate a diet as just being a diet, but it's how we use that food, isn't it? Absolutely. And Andrew, another thing that comes into it more and more and more, and this is where I've started to put my professional efforts, is into the realm of toxicity mm. and detoxification. So for example, I can give you a diet, doesn't matter what it is, but the moment I introduce toxins of various types, I can make you obese. If I change your microbiome, I can make you obese, irrespective of your diet. So microbiome, toxicity, where we live, um, our stress level. Mm. Just recently, not too long ago, I had um, one of my patients contact me and just kind of weigh in quickly and said, how is it that I'm not eating anything, but I'm still gaining weight? <laughs> it's like, well, okay, let's look at all the other things. Well, first of all, why are you not eating? Are you stressed? Yeah. What what's in your environment? You know, a lot of these other factors uh play into how we're eating. And that's why I always come back to that mantra of how we eat is how we live, how we live is how we eat. So just by you telling me that you eat a certain way, um, will tell me so much about your lifestyle. The two are intertwined. So yeah, that study with the um, with the Pima Indians in Southern California and no- northern part of Mexico completely makes sense. You know, socioeconomic status is going to change mm. things a bit. Our environment, the pollution, and, you know, even our social networks are going to change how we eat. There was a study, there have been several studies on this now, showing that, and you probably are well aware of these because they've been out since about 2007, that who we are connected to in terms of our emotional ties, not just a physical thing like a neighbor, but somebody that we really care about can determine our body mass index to a great degree, you know, and up to four degrees of separation. So if if the person we're really close to has two other friends that are distant, we are in essence connected to those people in their habits. So looking at social networks is really important and how they live in Mexico is going to be very different than the lifestyle in Southern California, even with respect to social networks. Wow. Deanna, can you do me a favor personally? Because this is something that I've been a little bit bamboozled by, and that is what is nutrigenomics? Well, the very simple definition of nutrigenomics is it's the effect of nutrients on gene expression. So, for example, you know, Jeff Bland is really good at saying this. You know, I I think of food in three buckets. Food is medicine, food is connection, and food is information. 
and I'll be talking about that at the conference. So when I say food is medicine, uh, that's pretty obvious. You know, you can eat a lot of healing foods or a lot of detrimental foods. Food is connection. How we eat, where we eat, with whom we eat will determine um, a lot of what we eat and how much we eat, etc. When we say food is information, essentially everything that we take in, when we digest it, these particulates become messengers to our cell signaling cascade. So think of the cell, like just imagine that we're going into that and visualize that. So all these particulates of nutrition are all around, whether it's vitamins or macronutrients or even phytonutrients, these plant compounds that have no calories, but they do impact cell signals. Mm. So what happens is that these, these signals are received by the cell and then eventually transmit into the DNA part, into the nucleus, into the DNA, and essentially we're changing in some way protein expression. And what's really amazing here, Andrew, and I think that for the practitioners listening, this might be an aha, is that it doesn't, it's not like this takes forever to happen. This happens after one meal. Hmm. We see epigenetic modification just within six hours after eating. Wow. Actually, even sooner. Yeah. Um, between two and four hours postprandially, we can see changes in lots of different markers, inflammatory cytokines, oxidative stress parameters, mitochondrial function, you name it. Um, so the power of one meal is astounding. So when I see patients that are saying, oh, well, gosh, you know, I just had one, one hamburger, went to McDonald's this once. Well, a lot of these epigenetic tags that we place on after a meal, if we do them consistently, it's harder and harder to remove those epigenetic tags. And we have what's called metabolic memory, which means that the cell goes into that mode of remembering. If we continue to have those McDonald's hamburgers, the cell starts to get used to seeing that. And eventually the DNA starts to create these, these modifications that will reflect our dietary patterns. So we're, we're learning much more about nutrigenomics uh, in terms of which Foods which bioactive influence our different, um, gosh, our, our genes in various ways. One simple one that I know that a lot of the practitioners have probably heard about is that of methylation, mm. right? So methylation, the addition of this methyl group onto a particular part of the genome, turning things on or turning things off. And uh, this is actually a great foray into nutrigenomics for practitioners because if a patient has faulty methylation and is not getting proper nutrition or proper supplements to make up for that gap, we can see all kinds of issues start to emerge. Cardiovascular disease, depression, high homocysteine, neurotransmitter imbalances. So it, the list goes on and on. So with that one meal, just to bring it back again, there is truly, we are creating our destiny with everything that we eat. Do we see, or do you see, looking at nutrigenomics, various commonalities, though, in quote-unquote healthy diets, um, and I'm talking here, I guess, on a population basis, not an individual basis. You know, we know that the Mediterranean diet is, for the masses, would be the, you know, the hero diet, but it's not for everybody. But no. there's, surely there's commonalities there. Yeah, you know, if if you were to ask me to to like if we were gambling and you said, okay, where are you going to put your money? Yeah. Uh, on which deck of cards here? What are you going to do? 
Um, quite honestly, from my survey of the literature and all the different diets that are out there, I would be putting my money on plant foods. Yeah. That there is something within the thousands of different phytonutrients that are in plant foods that are changing our genes in a favorable way. And I really get into this. Um, you know, you, you look at, it's amazing because in nutrition, we get so bogged down in focusing on what I call the three musketeers, protein, carbohydrate, and fat. Yeah, that's right. You know, and, and that's kind of limiting. Sometimes we veer off into talking about vitamins or minerals, but what not many people talk about is phytonutrients, plant compounds, and there are thousands of these compounds. There, there was one very interesting study. There are many different studies on this because I've been really diving in deep on, in, into the literature on this. But one study from Walsh in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2007, I believe it was, which essentially had um, two different diets where the diets were controlled for macronutrients and for calories. The only difference in one of the diets was the addition of phytonutrients. Now, keep in mind that phytonutrients, for the most part, do not contain calories. And so they added in a small amount of phytonutrients and within seven days saw these major shifts in metabolomic profiles in the urine. So there's something to be said for how these individual plant compounds are networking within the cell and how they're changing. And so why is it that the Mediterranean diet looks pretty good when you look at the studies? Well, Lots of whole foods, lots of plant-based foods. Why is it when we look at vegan or vegetarian or paleolithic diets, uh, a lot of these diets that veer away from heavy processed, processed carbs, right? And we we're looking yep. at the whole foods. Mm -hmm. It's really these signaling molecules that are having this this epigenetic change, I believe. But you know what, what I like about the Mediterranean diet, and this is something that it's not often spoken about, is... I wonder if the power, the, the power of the health of the French paradox diet, which is high saturated fat, and also the Mediterranean diet, and the link between those is social interaction at mealtimes. That's a brilliant point, and I've, and I've often said that to practitioners as well, and, and sometimes I'll mention it to patients. You know what's so interesting is that many people, when they read the Mediterranean diet studies, they say, well, gosh, I wonder what it is. Is it the olive oil? Is it the tomatoes? Is it the bread? Is it the fish? Is it the olives? It's like, no. Well, maybe it's all of it. All of it. It's yeah. the pattern. Yeah. And it's also how they're eating. Yep. If you've ever been to any of those countries, and there are 16 countries that span the Mediterranean region, gosh, they, it, I feel like they eat all day long. <laughs> and they eat well into the night. They take a lot of time when they're eating. Yeah. They seem to have a good time when they're eating. <laughs> so, so I think you're spot on that um, being relaxed and socially engaged yep. is a very good thing. And, and there have been studies to suggest that, by the way, that being relaxed is going to make you digest better, yes. more parasympathetic activity versus sympathetic. Yeah, I'm actually thinking about it from that sort of viewpoint about Two two things. One, decreasing your sympathetic um, stimulation and therefore allowing digestion to take place. But the other one is um, decreasing the time, uh, sorry, increasing the time that it takes for you to actually consume a meal. And so therefore it allows your hunger hormones to work more fully 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, your alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone and, and PYY and things like that become into balance because you've got time rather than, you know, you can eat right. a, a Mediterranean diet. If you eat alone, you're more likely to bolt that food to get it over and done with rather than space it out right. and have a conversation with somebody. And that, that may be very hard when you're dealing with certain patients who might be socially isolated. So I'm going to ask you there, mm-hmm. what do you teach your patients with regards to this whole interaction? How do you, yeah. how do you help somebody with that? Well, you know, I see it as a spectrum. I, I think first and foremost, at least in the States, what I observe is that a lot of people are very isolated. You know, they live in the bubbles of their cars, mm. in the bubbles of their offices, there isn't a lot of community interaction or, you know, in some cases there is. It's just that many people don't take meals together. When I lived in the Netherlands, when I was doing my PhD, it just seemed it was so common to just have dinner at a friend's house midweek, you know, on a Wednesday or Thursday night. It's like, it's no big deal. You just go over, you have a meal, you go home. It's not like it has to be a whole evening thing. But here in the States with people working two jobs, you've got working moms, you've got, um, not only working moms, but moms trying to do multiple things. Yeah. And, and I see moms the most, right? They're really stressed out. Yeah. There's no way they're going to be inviting people over. to. They could barely get through dinner themselves. They barely remember to eat. So there's that interaction, Andrew, of just focusing on the individual and ensuring that they have the space away from a stress Uh, a stress-filled environment to actually focus on their hunger signal, Mm. to actually be tuned into their sense of instinct around eating, and then to bring in the layers of community to support them. And it's difficult because, you know, when you start eating, like probably you and I eat, not everybody eats like this, right? So you deal with a lot of criticism or just kind of, you know, upturned noses, like, well, what's that all about? And, you know, I remember when I was in Australia, lots of drinking, lots of, <laughs> lots of, you know, they don't eat so healthy in, in Australia either. It's kind of like the States. In fact, I remember when I was there, I was there in 2011 and 2014. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember that, um, I guess the rates of obesity are higher in Australia than in the States, which was, Completely shocking and yeah. surprising for me. I think two thousand five yeah, so. we two thousand five we stole that uh, a dubious honor, but I think Mexico now wins that one. I think they've Mexico, won. Mexico, yeah, oh we're my the f- yeah. Australia's the fifth fifth well, highest obese nation now. It's it's difficult, isn't it, to kind of be the the um, person who breaks new ground, who <laughs> is the pioneer, and who starts eating differently. And fortunately, I have that legacy going back to my past. And now I feel really confident about it. Yeah. And so what I coach patients to do is to like really sit with that, know how your body feels and is it worth the social discomfort or comfort to have certain foods and then to have lasting effects that can span for days. I remember one patient in particular um, who, you know, I don't know what it is, but at church functions in the States, you know, after the Sunday services, many people come together They either do breakfast or there's a lot of pastries and cakes and I don't know what it is. There's just not that sense of health that I, that I have seen in church community. So for this patient in particular, she would go to her church gathering and felt a lot of pressure to eat like that because Mm. of course you're with your social network, right? So she would cave to chocolate and different foods that would give her migraines for days. And she didn't know how to say no or just to really sit within her own body and say, you know, that's just not good for me. And yeah. just to have different strategies. So sometimes I have to work with patients just on that. They know what to eat. 
it's the discipline and really um, being set in their health goals and, and letting that rule and, and really guide them in the, their different gatherings that they go to. But it's difficult, and, very, and, very difficult for people. And I think that's a perfect portrayal of what you mentioned right at the beginning about this social network. I mean, that's, that's extreme peer pressure. Now, Deanna, you're going to be speaking at the 2016 Bioceuticals Research Symposium, and I want to get onto that in a second about what delegates can come away with to enhance their practice and, you know, what little pearls of wisdom you can you can teach them. But if you don't mind, something that has just ticked in me, and it, uh, I'm pretty sure that you'll be confident now to, to express this, but you would be an absolute expert on helping people with eating disorders from your previous history. Mm-hmm. Can I, Do you mm-hmm. mind if I delve into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Let's talk about that. Not, not too much, but, but it's really interesting to me. <laughs> Well, the food has a power over these people, or is it these people trying to control something else and choosing food as an outlet? Yeah, well, I think it's all very different depending on the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. The one that I feel most drawn to working with just because of my my own inclinations and what I've worked with women on is this idea of emotional eating. Mm -hmm. And I had seen somewhere a statistic saying that um, 75% of overeating is due to emotional reasons. So I'll just repeat that because I think it's pretty profound. Absolutely. 75% of overeating is due to emotional reasons. So if you think about it, if we had control over our emotions a little bit better or were able to express emotions, we may not want to sink ourselves into food or find comfort in food um, in, in you know, just have that healthy conduit. So your question is an excellent one, you know, and I think in anorexia, there, there can be other issues around control and survival. I think in bulimia, you know, there, there's also can be some issues around that, that sense of control and the sense of not feeling, I, I think for everybody, it's so different. It's hard to just generalize, but I'm just giving some themes here. Yeah. Um, for, for any kind of eating issue. Yeah. There, there's that sense of, um, feeling out of control versus being in control. And um, that food also creates this this whole cascade of mood effects, right? And so we're going to feel a certain way when we're eating certain foods. So yes. if we're binging or if we're emotionally eating, and usually for people, they're not binging on broccoli. You know, they're binging on yeah. nutrient-poor, <laughs> uh, high-calorie foods and like ice cream and potato chips and all kinds of sugary foods, right? So there's something there that's changing brain chemistry mm. um, to, to allow us to kind of have that, that initial sense of that sugar high and that relief. And I do a fun activity with patients, and, and oftentimes I'll do this in a group in a kind of a workshop setting. So what I'll do is I'll ask if anybody has a food craving that they're wrestling with and they can't seem to figure it out. Maybe they've looked into physiological reasons, but they can't seem to find anything. So I'll just give you an example. I have so many examples of where I've done this, but um, I'll just tell you about one that I think is pretty amazing. So I I was working with a a patient um, some years ago, and for her, she didn't know why, but she was so fixated on potato chips, and it was just driving her nuts. She was a 47-year-old executive, very professional, very well-controlled in all other areas of her life, but she had this fixation on potato chips. 
So I asked her a couple of questions about the potato chips before we got into the activity. Mm. And, you know, she would grab the potato chips if she was stressed or, you know, she felt lonely or, you know, just there, there were some things that she it was pretty obvious, but she still couldn't understand why was it potato chips? Why wasn't it ice cream and cake and cookies and all the other things? So I did this little activity with her, which takes all of about 10 minutes. And so what I do is... I'll say the, the craving. So in her case, it was potato chips. And I'll say it over and over and over again. And then she tells me the first thing that comes to her mind. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a stream of consciousness. I, I call it laddering, where we kind of ladder into the subconscious a little bit. So I said potato chips, and she said crunchy. And then I said it again, and she said salty. You know, initially, a lot of those, the food hedonic properties come out. Yeah. And then we were about six or seven of the way in, and all of a sudden she burst out crying. And I said, what's wrong? And she says, she buried her, her hands, her, her head in her hands. She was crying. And then, and then she says, now I know where it's coming from. And I said, well, where, you know, where is this fixation coming from? And she said that when she was 12 years old, she, um, she was an only child, but when she was kind of that preteen age, her parents would, would go out. They would go out to the movies and they would leave her home alone and give her a bag of potato chips and dip. Wow. And yeah, and, and she had completely forgotten that. She didn't know why she was so wired into it. And she just, she was almost teleported into that, that same feeling of feeling lonely and needing comfort. And so she, she wrote me this whole card afterwards and, you know, just really reflecting and thanking me. Because in some way she had been opened up to this and she was able to break it, break her fixation. And it required going into that memory. And then what I asked her is, okay, when you feel alone, what are three other things that you can do? So she, she and I worked through that, you know, and I basically coached her and we talked about those things so that she had an out, you know, she didn't have to reach for a bag of potato chips every time she felt alone. Yeah. So, yeah, I think for everybody, it's going to be so different. You know, um, the majority of people, I really think most people have have cravings for things that are sweet more than things like potato chips. Mm. And my general observation of those people, they're they're working too hard. They don't have fun. They don't have joy. They don't, they don't have sweetness in their lives. And so they start binging and rewarding themselves with sugar because it gives them that high, that feeling of reward. They get... Um, you know, that kind of that dopamine rush yeah. and, and then, you know, it, it never lasts. So then they just keep going with it. And but see, that, that's a very common one that see, I see. See, this is something like I take those supposedly esoteric type things like, you know, sweetness in their life. And I immediately think biochemistry. I immediately go, what, mm-hmm. what is that giving you by, from a biochemical nature? And you've just explained it. The neurotransmitters, you know, affect you. And it goes, it goes hand in hand with what you said at the beginning, that foods can affect gene expression within minutes. And if you don't yeah. believe what you said then, just take the last time you, you wafted down a fast food meal. Yeah. yeah and you will see how quickly food can act. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, now this, um, I just watched on the plane this film from this man in Australia, and you're going to know it the moment I say it. That sugar, sugar film is yep. the name of it? Absolutely. Yeah, I love it because yeah. he does kind of what the Super Size Me guy does with McDonald's, yep. right? So 
he starts to incorporate all this sugar. And you can see how he morphs within these 40 days. You know, his waist gets bigger. And he's a thin guy. He's like a healthy guy before he starts this. So, you know, to see how somebody's life can change. And he even described how his moods changed, how he became depressed. And, you know, the the food-mood connection. In fact, I just put together a whole presentation on this, looking at the recent science. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Our emotions in the moment can determine how we taste food. So if I'm having a good day and things seem sweet and bright and lovely, I am going to taste things more sweet. And they've actually done this study with 550 men. They put them in seven different scenarios, four winning hockey games, three losing games, and one tie game. And they monitor their their eating uh, after the game. And what they found was that when the guys had experienced uh, winning we, games, yeah. they tasted things sweeter. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And when goodness. they experienced the losing games, they tasted the sour foods more sour. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my so goodness. So if your life, <laughs> and this study is, is relatively recent. I just happened to stumble upon it. I was just looking at all the recent literature on food and mood and um, basically, if you were to ask me, Deanna, wh- which one drives the other? Is it the mood that's driving the food or is it food driving mood? Mm-hmm. The science would say that food is driving mood. Wow, wait. But then mood will also drive food. But yeah. it's primarily, many researchers would suggest that it's more about the food. So back to your point about the emotional eating. So if we are creating those changes in neurotransmitters, changes in our mood, changes in our brain function, we get depressed, that's just going to propagate and perpetuate another cycle, another round of a sugar binge because we want to keep the, it's a drug. It's, it's like a drug, right? It is so, a drug. It is exactly a drug. Uh, I wish that we can break our patients away from that. I was just telling my husband today, I just wish people knew what it was like to feel good because they wouldn't go back. But many people cannot... You know, it's difficult for them to really create that lifestyle change and to be there. But there are different techniques. And back to your question, what are we going to cover in the presentation? Yeah. We're going to be talking about the the science, kind of the wrapping in the, the science and the clinical parts of looking at diets, dietary patterns, kind of the newer stuff. And there, there are some studies that I didn't talk about uh, with you, but I'm definitely going to unveil those. They're, they're more recent studies, more cutting edge uh, especially around personalized nutrition, because I think as practitioners, we all better be on the pulse of what is personalized. Mm. Um, this is the wave of the future. It's biotech meets medicine. So I'm going to be talking about that, weaving in some nutrigenomics. I'm going to take you through some case studies. I'm going to show you some of the tools that I use that are more functional medicine-based. So what are some easy therapeutics that you can use, and how would you guide a conversation with with people. Um, Another facet to the presentation is I want to present certain patient portfolios. So how do you know where to start uh, with, with each patient, right? There has to be some, some general guiding principles. We, we haven't cracked the nut of how to do personalized nutrition, um, you know, to the nth degree. So there have to be ways where we say, okay, this patient is coming in with this general presentation. They've got cardiometabolic syndrome. They have elevated risk for diabetes. They've got X, Y, and Z. How would I root them? Where would I put them uh, from a dietary perspective? So I'm going to be reviewing um, about five 
different diets, and then I'm going to bucket them based on patient presentations. I'm also going to talk about the how of eating, not just talking a little bit about emotional things, but I'm also going to get into fasting. Fasting is one of those things that's um, really bubbling up in the literature now, intermittent fasting, food restriction, calorie restriction. It's fascinating to see that literature. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it, so I'm it, going to talk about that too. This sort of stuff, I mean, I can't wait for this. I seriously can't. What you've spoken about today is really, I've been having some aha moments in the background here going, oh, really? So <laughs> it'll be very interesting to, <laughs> to, to learn what you've got to offer. And, you know, I, I think practitioners from around Australia, they'll t- come and listen to you and indeed all the other speakers and take away something quite unique that hasn't been, hasn't been taught before. Yeah, can't wait for that. In I think so too, and and I want to dialogue with everybody. I, I want good questions. I want us to you know give our toughest cases because food is not easy. You know, we're bombarded with the eating experience every day. We have two hundred decisions around food, is what has been studied, <laughs> but we still are approaching it in a very rudimentary way. Hmm. So I, I want to have a very frank, open discussion. I want us to to challenge each other and to bring up, um, you know, just call call each other on, on on the carpet on you know what are we doing and and how do we really push the needle forward you know in australia i believe that people are definitely just like south africa whenever i lecture in south africa very advanced you know the naturopaths and and all the different practitioners there I think that we can we can move to the next um, kind of the next ground of nutrition, mm-hmm. where we do start talking about nutrigenomics. We bring in what we know about SNPs and um, some of the newer literature too. You know, the gut microbiome, looking at toxins. Yep. We have a lot to talk about, so I see it definitely. You know, I'll, I'll be giving a lecture, but I want to hear from everybody. I want good questions. We'll have plenty of time within the the presentation and the, the the general panel discussion where we can get to those. Yeah, and indeed there's going to be, it's going to be a little bit of a different format, isn't it, from most, um, you know, conferences. Right. It's not just didactic. There's going to be breakout sessions where you actually correct. teach people your day-to-day things, correct? That's right, that's right. So we'll have, um, I'm presenting two plenary lectures and uh, one will be on diet and dietary patterns. The other one is going to be on nutrients, bioactives, and herbs. So talking a bit about supplements. So this is where my 10 years of working with Jeff Bland, uh, actually working for a dietary supplement company, working in functional medicine, and kind of talk about, again, patient protocols. What do we do within functional medicine? And I'm really excited about that. I love supplements. I, I think that there's such a place for them. And that's where I've seen people get well is uh, not everybody can get well on diet alone. Sometimes it requires a bit of a push in different directions. So we have to uh, know how to navigate that space. So I'm excited to talk about those. So aside from the plenaries, I will also be doing workshops. So we'll do case studies. I'll take you through some of the tools that I use. And so it'll be really hands-on, but I, I do want the practitioners to have a good sense of also just top line what's going on in the science too because the science trickles into the clinical work so exciting for 2016 i can't wait to meet you deanna yeah it'll be great i'm really looking forward to it this is fx medicine and i'm andrew whitfield cook this is andrew from fx medicine 
We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter.